0: Now as we begin our study of the book of Zephaniah this evening, our goal tonight, extending to next week probably, will be to help you understand the historical context of the prophet and his prophecy. We're going to do this slowly so as to give you time to grasp the information, most of which will come from passages from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We're not going to be in a hurry, so please stop me if you have a question, if you need some clarification, or if you're just getting lost. I want to do this deliberately and carefully so you may derive the greatest benefit from the information, and there's a lot of information here. But I'm hoping it will remind you of stories you are familiar with, or at least remember. Our purpose in all this is to place Zephaniah in the big picture, the history of the international events of his time. And we want to place Zephaniah in the smaller picture, that is the history of the national events of his time in Judah. And finally, we want to place Zephaniah in the personal picture, his own personal prophetic biographical picture. Big international picture, little national picture, personal individual picture. As we examine this historical detail, we do not want to lose sight of the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. The word of the Lord, our God, interfaces with the word of the Lord's prophet, Zephaniah, in this time of personal, national, and international history. The life of the Lord, our God, interfaces with the life of the Lord's prophet, Zephaniah, in this time of personal, national, and international history. And the full expression of this prophetic drama is the Christ of God, the Lord's Christ in the heart and in the life of the Lord's prophet, Zephaniah. In the chapters of Zephaniah's prophecy of the word of God, We would see God the Word. We would see Jesus, our Savior, who is the fullness of the prophets, yea, the fullness of the prophet Zephaniah. The name Zephaniah in Hebrew means the prophet whom God hides as a treasure. The prophet whom God hides. As a treasure. I hope our study will show you what a treasure Zephaniah is a treasure who will be no longer hidden from you, a treasure open to you in the fullness of the eschatological prophet, Jesus Christ the Lord. Now if you have your Bible open to Zephaniah 1.1, now we begin, I'm going to begin with you Nancy, will you read the first verse for us? Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Thank you. Now, as you read that verse and as you followed, is there anything in that verse that provides you with a clue to the date of this book? We know the date of the king. We've got The days of Josiah. All right. Now, does anyone remember the date of Josiah's death? Very good. Ben, you've got the front end as well as the back end. The back end is 609, the front end is 640. Very good. Somebody's remembered Jeremiah. All right. So we can date the days of Josiah to the time of his kingship, 640 to 609 B.C., which makes Zephaniah a prophet of what century? 7th century B.C., 7th century B.C. Remember, we're always one ahead when we go from 0 to 2,000, and we're always one behind when we're going backwards. (laughs) All right, now, let's place Zephaniah in a broader prophetic context. Let's ask some questions about other prophets. For instance, is Zephaniah before? or after Isaiah. He is after Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of what century? The 8th century. So Isaiah is about 700 years before Christ. Now, if I asked you to tell me what the message of the book of Isaiah is... What would you tell me? What would you say about the book of Isaiah? Marge, I'm going to pick on you. What would you tell me that you know about the book of Isaiah? That's 66 chapters. (laughs) Do you have a favorite chapter in Isaiah? Chapter 53, yes, we would remember Isaiah 53. What's in Isaiah 53? Sandy, what's in Isaiah 53? I have no clue. You have no clue. Well, that's the reason you came tonight. Dick, what's in Isaiah 53? Nancy, you've got your hand up. The
1: prophecy of the suffering and death of
0: Christ. The suffering servant of the Lord. Now, how do we know that that refers to Christ. That might just be Isaiah himself speaking poetically. Or maybe he's speaking in terms of all Israel is the servant of the Lord. He's not really talking about an individual at all. How do we know he's talking about Jesus? Okay, how do you know he's talking about Jesus there? All the things he mentions
2: happen to
0: Jesus. That is true. But that could be coincidence, right? I'm a good liberal now. That's just pure coincidence. <laughs> Yes, it is, isn't it? Bob is going to help you. Oh, he's not going to help you. Here I, here I thought that this dynamic duo was going to come up with... But you're right. You've got part of it, Okay, It is quoted in the New Testament. Where is it quoted in the New Testament? Counselor, David, where is it quoted in the New Testament? He's struggling. Counselor's struggling with his brief... Uh, <coughs> How about Lisa? Lisa, where is it quoted in the New Testament? Do you know? All right, anyone? Yes, it is in Acts. No, it's in Acts chapter 8. The specific question here is how do we know that Isaiah 53 is referring to Christ? It's in Acts chapter 8. It's the story of, you remember David? The story in Acts 8 of what? It's the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, he come to Jerusalem to worship, and he's on his way back to Ethiopia, and he's on the Gaza Strip, and we all know about the Gaza Strip these days, don't we? Okay, he's on the Gaza Strip, and who does he meet on the Gaza Strip, or who comes to meet him on the Gaza Strip? Philip comes to meet him, and what's the Ethiopian eunuch doing? He's reading the Bible. Huh. In his chariot, he's reading the Bible. Now, that's not a reason for you to be reading the Bible while you're texting down the freeway, please. You can listen to it on your audio, your MP3 player, or whatever, but you're not reading the Bible. You keep your hands on the wheel. All right. And he says to Philip, who is this that is being described in Isaiah 53? And Philip breaks out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and shows him that that is uh, specifying the work of Christ, which has been accomplished in his death and resurrection. So we have a passage which confirms the fact that Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, with that 53rd chapter in particular, other chapters as well, But in Isaiah 53, he is specifically prophesying the death of our Lord Jesus for our sins. That is a marvelous chapter for you to use in preparation for communion. In fact, I would encourage you the next time you're preparing for communion. I trust you are preparing for communion when you come to the Lord's table. You're taking some time to meditate upon the scriptures and reflect upon your own sins and your need for the sufficiency of what is symbolized at that table, <clears throat> that you might meditate on Isaiah 53 before you come to the table. And that way, the chapter will remain in your memory associated with the vicarious atonement for the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ who was led as a lamb to the slaughter for your sake. All right, so there's one thing about Isaiah that we remember. Now, let's also think about Isaiah in terms of the broad historical context. He's 700 years before Jesus. What is going on in Jerusalem in uh, Isaiah's day? One major event is a major crisis. Art, you're nodding your head.
3: Kingdom fell.
0: Well, the northern kingdom has fallen just before uh, Isaiah comes to his ministry. That is correct. What else is happening? There's another threat to the southern kingdom.
3: Ephraim and Syria are joined together, uh, and uh, he has chosen, uh, Ahaz has chosen Assyria to show his support, to go for his support. Against Ephraim and Syria. And uh, the Lord comes and tells them, Trust me, and trust Assyria.
0: And I'll give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive. Okay, that's another incident. But there's a major crisis. I'm not minimizing the crisis of Ahaz, but there's a major crisis that arises with King Hezekiah. And who is who is King Hezekiah's best friend? Kerry, who's, who's King Hezekiah's best friend? Besides God, who's King Hezekiah's best friend? I don't know. It's the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is Hezekiah's best friend. So what are Isaiah and Hezekiah confronted with? Back to you, Pete. Did you, yeah,
3: Sennacherib.
0: It's Sennacherib. It's the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. Who's Sennacherib?
3: He's the chief uh, of the army. Of-
0: He's more than that. He's more than that. <laughs> Sennacherib is. He is the Assyrian. He is the Assyrian king. He's the king of Assyria. When he surrounds Jerusalem. When his army surrounds Jerusalem. In the year 701 BC. And out of that siege. God preserves Jerusalem. From the assault of the Syrian army. And miraculously delivers the city. But that crisis, you see is reflected not only in the story of Hezekiah in 2 Kings and Second Chronicles, it's also copied in the book of Isaiah. Chapters 36 to 39 of the book of Isaiah are a duplicate narrative of the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. And so we have the prophet Isaiah featuring this crisis of Jerusalem surrounded by the Assyrian enemy, the Assyrian wolf, Uh, ready to seize the nation, but delivered wonderfully by God. All right, so there are a few things from Isaiah that we remember, and with places in relief the fact that in the 8th century B.C., Assyria is a threat to Judah, as we shall see, she remains even in the 7th century B.C. All right, um, have I lost you yet? This is just kind of a Bible review. Remember, if you're thinking, now what's the book of Isaiah about? You see, you have a little quick answer about what's in there, uh, at least in terms of a broad uh, overview. Sixty-six chapters are a little bit much to detail. We'd be here for a couple hours to do all that. But nonetheless, just that you have an, a conceptual idea of what is in uh, the book of Isaiah of some of the major points. All right now what about Ezekiel? <clears throat> Let's go to Ezekiel and think about whether he is before or after Zephaniah. He is after Zephaniah. That's correct. What century is he prophesying in? The 6th century, the 500s. Now, how do we know that he is a 6th century B.C. prophet? he is in Babylon and how did he get the Babylon, Ben he was carried away when was he carried away not 586 go ahead Ben of
3: the of
0: yes so he was how did he get the Babylon
3: this
0: Yes, the fifth year of Jehoiakim's captivity is the fifth year of his being there too. That's Ezekiel 1-2, <clears throat> and uh, Ben is reminding us that in 597, when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, he carried away Jehoiakim and his mother and many others, including the prophet Ezekiel. All right, now that brings us to Hosea. <clears throat> What about Hosea? Is he before or after Zephaniah? Yes, he is before. What century do we place Hosea in? He is in the 8th century B.C. once again. And what is Hosea's message? If you think of the summary of the content of the book of of Hosea, we didn't say anything about the content of the book of Ezekiel, but if you think of the book of Ezekiel, what do you think, besides the fact that he was prophesying in Babylon during the captivity?
3: It's highly symbolical.
0: It's highly symbolical. It's highly symbolical. There is symbolism there, particularly in the last eight chapters, the last nine chapters, I should say. What do you think of Ezekiel? Come on, all you Negro spiritual fans dem bone, damn bone, gonna walk around. Yeah, it's that valley of dry bones vision. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we we don't want to forget Ezekiel and the dry bones, and there are other marvelous things in that book as well. But back to Hosea. What do we think about when we think about Hosea? He's an eighth century BC prophet. He is in the same century as Isaiah. Did he know Isaiah? What's he focusing on? You
3: see, you see, Simeon, Hosea is focusing on, on the uh, relationship between God and the people of Israel as his bride and the fact that they are adulterated, uh, the, the marriage union, and that we get as as to receive them.
0: Very good, Ben. So one of the motifs that Hosea uses is this marriage covenant relationship between God and his people, which has been ruptured by the adulterization or the prostitution, the whoredom of Israel to idols. <clears throat> but what's he projecting as a result of that sin of idolatry? Judgment. What judgment? judgment? Babylonian. Not Babylonian. No, the Assyrians. The Assyrians the Assyrian are going to do what? To whom is he prophesying? To the Northern Kingdom, what's the capital of the Northern Kingdom? Samaria. Samaria. So he's Hosea prophesying to Israel, Northern Kingdom capital Samaria, because they have adulterated and prostituted themselves before idols. Hosea says God's going to do what? He's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy the nation of Israel. He's going to destroy the whole Northern Kingdom. How many tribes is that that he's going to destroy? He's going to destroy the ten tribes of that northern kingdom. He's going to destroy Samaria. And who does that? The Assyrians, the Assyrians do it. The Assyrians do it. No, Babylonians are not in the picture yet. <clears throat> okay? The Assyrians do it under Shalmaneser V or Sargon II. There's still argument about which one of it does it, which one, which king is on the throne when it happens. What's the date of the collapse of the northern kingdom? 722 B.C. All right, so Hosea is on the other side of 722, probably somewhere around the middle of the century, one 750 to 730, and he's prophesying the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel because, as Ben pointed out, this adulterous relationship which arises from the spiritual whoredom of Israel prostituting herself before the idols of the nations. Now, that leaves us with Haggai, <clears throat> Is Haggai before or after Zephaniah? He is after Zephaniah. What century does Haggai belong to? Fifth. Fifth?
2: Fifth. Sixth. Sixth.
0: Sixth. He belongs to the sixth century. What can you tell me about Haggai? Little book of two chapters. What's it all about? The The rebuilding of the temple. Which allows us to date Haggai. Is he before or after the exile? He's after the exile. When's the end of the exile? 539. How is the exile ended? Who puts an end to it? Cyrus Cyrus the Great, king of Persia. Persia. Okay, and the Jews go back to Jerusalem, and they lay the foundation of the temple, and then they quit, and it lies unfinished for years, and God says, they ain't a pep rally, they need somebody to stir them up, they need to win a Super Bowl, that'll get the crowds out, that'll get them moving, Excuse the metaphor, but at any rate, you get the idea. The nation was in a state of apathy. They didn't finish what they'd started. So, how did God get them stirred up? Who did He send to be the cheerleaders of this group? Nehemiah. Not Nehemiah. He's a hundred years away. Ezra is a hundred years away. Haggai is one. And who's his compatriot? Zechariah and Haggai, they are sent to stir up the nation so that the temple will be completed and it is finished in the reign of Darius I in 516 B.C. All right, so the book of Haggai, and for those of you from the Linwood Church, you have an excellent series of sermons years ago from Benji on this little book, And Benji actually has published a magnificent article in the KWooks.com website on this book. He's worked out the structure in a way that even the higher critics had never imagined. It's a remarkable piece of work came out of a paper he did in his Old Testament Prophets course here at Northwest Theological Seminary years ago. So at any rate, uh, when, you, when you want to begin with the book of Haggai, you want to take on the book of Haggai, you remember the name Benji Swinburne because that's where you're going to start. That's where I would start now. The teacher has been taught by the student. <laughs> All right. Now, this gives us a panorama then of major and minor prophets here. And I've done this so that you realize the content of these books is important. Just a simple condensation of something that sticks with you. If you understand the flow of history, you understand why God has chosen these individuals to speak these words, which are recorded in your Old Testament, I realize you don't really read the Minor Prophets a lot. You don't read the Major Prophets a lot. I understand that. I know that. I've been there. I've done that. 60 years ago, I've been there and done that, but I've grown up. So you need to grow up a little bit, and you need to understand that this is the Word of God, and you need to be able to say, well, I know what's in that book. At least I can give you one sentence about what's in Haggai. I can give you one sentence about what's in Ezekiel. i give you one sentence about what's in Obadiah. Now, you see, I didn't ask you that one. Be warned. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> This is, this is Bible content, okay? Understanding that these books that you have between the pages of this Bible are full of the Word of God, which means that Obadiah is full of the Word of God, and you ought to know something about what Obadiah is saying by the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> All right. Well, back to uh, Zephaniah. He's a 7th century B.C. prophet. We've already established that. What are the other 7th century B.C. prophets? You'll notice that when we went through Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Haggai, I didn't give you any of the answers ahead of time. I didn't make it easy on you. So who are the other 7th century B.C. prophets? Name one. Terry, name one of 7th century B.C. prophet for me. You sat through the whole series. Anyway. Daniel. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a 7th century B.C. prophet. Daniel is a 6th century B.C. prophet. All right. Who are the other 7th century B.C. prophets? Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a 7th century B.C. prophet. Good. And one more. Nahum is a 7th century beefy prophet. Very good. All right, now we're going to analyze those three. So you might start with Jeremiah and then put Nahum to the right of him and Habakkuk to the right of Nahum. And we're going to talk about these three in terms of what is negative and positive about their message. So we begin with Jeremiah because some of you have been exposed to Jeremiah in a lengthy series which we finished a year ago. When I say negative, <clears throat> Jeremiah has been called to prophesy a negative event in the future. What is that negative event that Jeremiah has been commissioned, commissioned to predict? Terry, do you want to take that one?
3: It's yeah, the
0: fall of Jerusalem. In what year? Anyone? 586 B.C. The final fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. But he was called to prophesy, according to the second verse of the first chapter of his book, Jeremiah 1, 2. He was called to prophesy in the 13th year of King Josiah which means that he is a possible contemporary of Zephaniah because he prophesies in the days of Josiah and the following. But at least he begins in the days of Josiah. So he begins his ministry, begins to preach the 13th year of Josiah, which would be what year? 627. 627, 26 B.C. All right, so because he prophesies in the days of King Josiah, Zephaniah prophesies in the days of King Josiah, we have an interesting question. Did they know one another? Did they know one another? They're in the same nation, right? They're Judeans. They're in the same city. As you will see, Zephaniah knows Jerusalem. Jeremiah knew Jerusalem very well. He was even imprisoned in Jerusalem. He was placed in stocks in Jerusalem. He was a uh, he was somebody to make fun of in Jerusalem. He was imp- oppressed in Jerusalem. All right, well, did they know one another? We can't finally answer this question, but it's an intriguing question, and it in fact reflects upon how we date the book of the prophet Zephaniah. Now, we'll get into that in detail later on. We're not going to touch it uh, tonight. But nonetheless, we raise the question. Since they are contemporaries and they both specify the days of King Josiah, then we realize that it is conceivable that they rubbed shoulders with one another. Or if they did not, then we have some additional Reasons for dating one book one way and the other book another way. All right, this is kind of the mystery of sorting out what we don't know. So we start to make associations, and we look to see whether or not there are reflections which may suggest that they had a personal camaraderie or a personal fellowship. All right, now let's go on to Nahum next. Oh, I did not mention the positive message of Jeremiah. Let's take a look at that. As you think of the book of Jeremiah, particularly those of you who are with me, with me for that series, what would be the positive message or the thing that stands out of Jeremiah that you may recall? Okay. I think there's something even more wonderful than that. Did you say
2: it's 70 years? will
0: come back. Something more wonderful than that. At the center of the book, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And when you have it, read it out to verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. A new covenant. Go ahead.
2: Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the (coughs) land. My covenant, which they bore, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is a covenant that I will make for the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my wall in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will do their God.
0: Now there's the wonderful center of the book of Jeremiah, the new covenant. I will be their God, they shall be my people, because I will give them a new heart. And that is so precious that it's found somewhere else in the Bible. Where else is it found in the Bible? What chapter? Hebrews chapter 8. And it appears in Hebrews chapter 8, as the longest quotation of any Old Testament book in the New Testament. The longest quotation of any Old Testament book in the New Testament. That's how important that prophecy of Jeremiah is. Because the writer of the Hebrews says, that's talking about my Savior. That's talking about my Lord who made a new covenant in his own blood. That's talking about the way I come to have a new relationship with the God of heaven, the God of Jeremiah. God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ was made his son, the center of a new covenant, and made me his son or daughter according to his gracious and all merciful will. When you hear Jeremiah, you should immediately hear New Covenant resonating. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews hears. You want to think like a Bible writer, right? You want to think like the Bible people think, right? So, Jeremiah, New Covenant. Because that's what Hebrews 8 thinks about. All right, so, wonderful positive message out of Jeremiah. Now, let's go to Nahum. Now, we begin with the negative (coughs) of Nahum what is the message of the book of Nahum now this is easy because I've given you this mnemonic before what's a mnemonic a memory device Nahum and Nineveh and N boy he's an N and N boy not an M and M boy he's an N and N boy didn't have M&N's in his days, but he had n Okay, Nahum and Nineveh. What's he saying about Nineveh in his three-chapter book? Wonderful place. That Nineveh is going to be destroyed, right? Nahum is prophesying the destruction of Nineveh. And when did that occur? And Nineveh is the capital of what? The Assyrian Empire. Okay. Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire, is going to be destroyed. Assyrian Empire is going to be destroyed. Who's going to destroy it? The Babylonians. What year is it going to be destroyed? What year is Nineveh going to be destroyed? In other words, when does Nahum end? Which means he prophesies before this date. 7th century. It's 7th century BC. I want the date. That's not good enough.
2: 639?
0: No, 612. 612 BC. Destruction of Nineveh as Nahum predicts it. Destruction by the Babylonians under Nabopolassar and his son, Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar. All right, we'll get into that a little later when we flesh out more of the detail around uh, Zephaniah's Jerusalem. But nonetheless, Nahum has predicted the destruction of the great enemy of the people of God in the 7th century B.C., namely the Assyrian Empire. In fact, the great enemy of all nations at that time. Syria was a war machine based on terrorism and brutality. All right, now, is there anything about the book of Nahum which is positive? Is there any good news in the book of Nahum? So let's turn to the book of Nahum. You've got your fingers in Jeremiah 31, maybe. So let's turn to, to Nahum, who is just before Habakkuk. And let's take a look at a couple of verses in the book of Nahum, which helps us realize that Nahum is not all about judgment. Judgment. There's a lot of judgment in those three chapters, but that's not all there is. So let's take a look at verse 15 of chapter 1. And whoever has verse 15 of chapter 1, read it out, please. Look there
1: on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, old Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more, no more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed.
0: Thank you. Now, notice that phrase, good news. Okay? In Greek... What would that word be? Scott? Yes, which means what? Gospel. Gospel, yes. It's the word for gospel there. Behold on the mound the feet of him who brings the gospel. Euangelion, the the good news. Okay, so there's good news in Nahum. It's the good news of the gospel. He's projecting something which is going to bring resolution, salvation, and relief to the, the children of Judah. Now, there's another verse in chapter 2. Verse 2 of the second chapter. Read it out. Anyone?
1: For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel for the emptiers to have emptied them out and marred their vine
2: branches.
0: Okay. Now, I don't like the, the translation there. God has restored the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. <clears throat> it's, it's God restoring what has been tarnished and uh, defaced. So here are two verses in Nahum which say there is a positive message for Israel and Judah. And that is the restoration motif. That is the good news of relief from oppression, relief from the terrorism of the Assyrian Empire. And the manifestation of that but long down through the history, name of the terrorism and oppression of the evil empire of the kingdom of darkness. So Nahum, very small book, but a book which is devastating to the uh, Assyrians, has a message which is positive gospel, good tidings. Now let's turn to Acts chapter ten. Acts chapter ten, verse thirty-six. Now, this is a sermon by the Apostle Peter, verse 36. Would someone read it out?
3: The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. There's Peter talking
0: about Christ being the Lord of all in the house of Cornelius. He's obviously emphasizing that uh, Gentile emphasis. But I want you to notice that word uh, gospel peace, preaching peace. There are scholars who believe that that little phrase used by the apostle Peter comes from Nahum chapter one verse fifteen. He is referring to the good news that Nahum was predicting. Now, that's not a consensus that namely, namely that Peter is referring to Nahum one fifteen, but it is an interesting observation, and I think it is a tantalizing allusion. Namely, Peter uses the same kind of vocabulary that the Greek translation of the book of Nahum uses when he talks about this gospel, this euangelion, this gospel which has come. So Acts 10.36 may be a kind of proof text of the fact that Nahum 1.15 finds its fulfillment in the New Testament proclamation of the gospel of Christ. All right, now, uh, let's go on to Habakkuk, and we'll round off our examination of the contemporaries of Jeremiah with Habakkuk. We said he's a 7th century B.C. prophet as well. How do we know he's a 7th century B.C. prophet? What is it that tells us that he's prophesying in the 7th century B.C.? Well, you had the book of Nahum, so let's turn one book forward to the book of Habakkuk, and let's take a look at verse 6 of chapter 1. And will somebody read it out?
3: For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Who are
0: the Chaldeans? They are the Babylonians. So, God is telling Habakkuk that the Babylonians are coming. Which means that Habakkuk is not looking at the Assyrians coming. He's looking at the next wave of international oppression. And the next wave of international oppression in the 7th century is the Babylonians. So, he precedes the Babylonian invasion of Palestine and Judea. He's a 7th century figure. That is his negative message, namely the Babylonians are coming. So he's eventually projecting the date of 586 B.C., namely the destruction of Jerusalem in that verse. Though he may be prophesying the initial invasion and the subsequent threefold invasion of of Judah by the Babylonians. And we'll come to that later on when we talk about the full detail of the Babylonian era with respect to Judah. Now, what's the positive message? If you had a positive message from the prophet Habakkuk what positive message would you point out from his book if you think of the book of Habakkuk now you know he's talking about the Chaldeans coming the Babylonians are going to come to destroy Jerusalem what's the positive message from Habakkuk that you remember how does this book resonate in your mind what do you remember from the book of Habakkuk the just shall live by faith good for you Protestants All right, glad to know I've got some Protestants out there Habakkuk 2.4, just shall live by faith. So he's talking about justification by faith, isn't he? And that passage is quoted in the New Testament. How many times is that passage quoted in the New Testament? How important is it to the New Testament? At least least once where? at At least twice where? 17. Very good. Galatians 3.11. And one more time, because it stands at the head of one of the greatest anaphoric chapters in the Bible. What's the greatest anaphoric chapter in the Bible? Hebrews 11 is the greatest anaphoric chapter in the Bible, and this passage stands at the head of it. Chapter 10, verse 38. The just shall live by faith, and then in Hebrews 11 1, by faith, and on through Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith. So Habakkuk 2 4 keys Hebrews 11, the faith chapter in the New Testament. In other words, a very important verse about how the just shall live. The just shall be saved by faith, not by their works. That's Paul's argument. He puts an antithesis between faith and works with respect to justification. So what is justification? What does our catechism say justification is? What is the answer to question 33 of the Shorter Catechism? Question 33 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks you, what is justification? And you say, as OPC people, what do you say? Justification is.
3: Uh, say it louder, whoever's saying it. I can't go it. The thing is, it's an act of, of the free grace of God. It's an act
0: of God's free grace. Wherein. Wherein. He pardoneth us of all our sins. And. And. Accepteth us. As righteous in his sight, go ahead, Mary. Only for the
2: righteousness of Christ who
0: yielded to us and received by faith. Give that lady a a plus. <laughs> and the rest of you, go thou and do likewise. <laughs> that is a question and answer that you should have in your brain. Now, why does the Catechism say wherein He pardoneth all our sins? Why do you have to have your sins pardoned to be justified? Yeah, that's the grace of God, yes. But why do you have to have your sins pardoned to be justified? Because you're... We're we're, we're sinners. Yes, you're, you're too filthy, right? You're too guilty, right? You're filthy sinners. You can't come in there without being washed, okay? So you need to get your sins washed. Where do you get your sins washed? Where do you go to get your sins washed? The blood. the blood of Jesus from the, the cross. cross of Christ. Okay, so the cross of Christ has something to do with justification, right? The cross of Jesus has something to do with cleansing your sin, washing the filth of your sin and guilt away, okay? So you need the cross of Jesus for your justification, don't you? But that's not all the catechism says, does it? catechism says it's not only that you need washed of the filth and guilt of your transgressions by the blood of Jesus offered up on the cross. <clears throat> what else does the catechism say? You need to be righteous. Are you righteous? Dick Holton, are you righteous? Are you righteous? Where are you going to get righteousness? did God take you? Can God take you into his heaven without you being righteous?
3: Righteousness of Christ. That the
0: righteousness of Christ. How do you get it? Computed. I have to believe. You have to believe. Nancy? It's imputed. It's imputed. What's that mean? Dick, what's imputed mean? Given to me. You got your wallet with you? (laughs) You got any imputed imputed cards in there, in that wallet of yours? (laughs) In this case, it's given to me. It's given to you, okay, but it's given to you by imputation. What's imputation mean? I bet your wife's got imputation cards. (laughs) I don't know a wife that doesn't have imputation cards. My what? Yeah, there you, there you go. It's accredited to you. See, it's charged to your account. It's just it's like you conducting a credit card charge. All right, imputation. The righteousness of Christ is credited to you as a gift by grace. But well, why do you need it? Because you're sin. Well, we got we got the guilt of sin. Okay. Yeah. Thunder, no. That's still forgiveness of sins. You see, that's still the cross of Jesus, but. but Giving you the righteousness, what does that come from? That doesn't come from the cross of Jesus, does it? The righteousness comes from what? Christ's righteous life. Oh, so you need the righteous life of Jesus too for your justification. It's not just you need the cross of Jesus to wash you from the guilt of your sin. You need the righteous life of Jesus to cover your... Unrighteousness, right? You got all unrighteousness around you, so you need a righteousness robe to cover it, so when God looks on you, He doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees His Son's perfect righteousness. So you need the life of Christ for your justification. You need the death of Christ for your justification. That's what top lady means when you sing rock of ages, cleft for me, be, um, let me hide myself with me. Be of sin the double, double cure. cure. Double cure. Why? Because you're unrighteous, that's got to be cured. How's your unrighteousness cured? The righteousness of Christ. That's the cure for your unrighteousness. How's your guilt cured? The blood of Christ washes the guilt away, washes the filth of your sin away. You need the double cure. You got two diseases. You got two incurable diseases. You got a disease of unrighteousness, and you got a disease of guilt and filthiness. You got to have both cured. His life cures your disease of unrighteousness because his righteous life is imputed to you, credit to you. And you need his blood to cleanse you from your filthiness and guilt and stain. And that washes away your filth and sin. And then grace upon grace, what does Paul say in Romans 4, 25? So we've gone through the double cure. He lived to justify me by his righteousness. He died to justify me by his blood shed on the cross. And Paul in 4.25 of Romans says, he was raised again for our justification. So justification is the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all given to you as a wonderful free gift which you did not deserve, could never earn, and by faith you take it to yourself, because by faith you take the Christ who justifies to yourself. Now, if that doesn't cause you to shout hallelujah, hallelujah. I've got the life of Christ on my side, I've got the death of Christ on my side, I've got the resurrection of Christ on my side, that's worth shouting about. Would to God the Roman Catholics would shout about that, right? Because all you Protestants out there are shouting about it. I hope... Praise the Lord. Amen. David, is patient.
3: Before Adam fell, he did not have unrighteous acts. He wasn't a sinner.
2: But he also didn't have Christ's righteousness at that point in time. He was human.
0: No, he did not. He didn't need it at that point. <clears throat> But as soon as he ate the fruit of the tree, he needed the righteousness of Christ. Just as you and I, from the moment we're conceived, need the righteousness of Christ. And praise God, the righteousness of Christ is sufficient for all our unrighteousness. Because he is the very righteousness of God. All right, so Habakkuk leads us to this wonderful, Protestant, evangelical Reformed doctrine of justification by faith alone, because it's by grace alone, because it's by Christ alone. Life of Jesus, death of Jesus, empty tomb of Jesus, it's all yours. It's all yours. What a wonderful gift. Time for a break. We comment about commentaries in these series uh, because some of you asked me what commentary could I get to follow along with the book that we're studying. <clears throat> the, the most evangelical conservative commentary on Habakkuk is in the Tyndall Old Testament series by David Baker. You get three for the price of one. You get Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. <clears throat> Now, this isn't the best conservative commentary, but it's the best simple or short commentary. The longest commentary on uh, Zephaniah, which is the best conservative commentary, is by uh, J.A. Mater. But it's in a large 1,000-page volume, uh, which is just too expensive and also The commentary is too detailed in terms of the Hebrew text. Now that's good for me and good for somebody that knows Hebrew, but it's not good for you. So this is a lay commentary. Uh, You know, it's adequate. It's not brilliantly outstanding, but it's adequate. So if you want something to have to read about what a commentary says on Zephaniah, this is the one I would recommend. David Baker in the Tyndall Old Testament Commentary Series his volume on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. All right, now back to our outline on Zephaniah. And I didn't want to leave the prophetic context without summarizing the book of Zephaniah itself, since we've tried to extract something from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Haggai, Jeremiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. In other words, we've covered a lot of prophetic ground tonight in summary fashion. I wanted to give you a summary of the content of the book of Zephaniah. This is something that you can take with you. This is something that will help you remember the meaning of the book. This is the shorthand outline of the prophet Zephaniah, the Dies Irae and the Dies Gratiae. I right, know those are Latin words, but nonetheless, they're famous Latin phrases. For instance, the Dies Irae, which means day of wrath in Latin, is famous in all classical music, particularly the Requiem masses of Verdi, Mozart, Berlioz, and others. The most famous Dies Irae chorus comes from Verdi's Requiem, in my opinion. Where did it come from? Where did they get this phrase, dies Irae? They got it from Zephaniah. They got it from the Latin text of chapter 1, verse 15. So in Zephaniah 1.15, what do we read? A day of wrath is that day. A day of wrath, dies Irae, is that day, dies ilia. So dies Irae is one of the poles of this three-chapter book. Now, if we turn over to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, what do we read? We read, da, in that day. In that day, I will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion, do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. That's the dies gratia, the day of grace. So, Zephaniah 1 and Zephaniah 3, balanced between the poles of the theme of this book, balanced between the day of wrath on the one hand, chapter 1, verse 15, balanced on the other hand by the day of God's magnificent grace, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and other parts of the third chapter. Notice the use of the image of the day, the day of wrath, the day of grace. That's the simple voice, that's the simple message of the voice of the prophet Zephaniah. God will bring wrath and he will also bring grace. Any questions? You're not lost on that one, right? Very good. Now, we've dealt with the prophetic context of the prophet We've seen that he's part of a broad school of the prophets and how he fits into it in summary fashion. He is a 7th century B.C. prophet who has a, shall we say, antipodal message that is like the North and South Pole or Antipodes, that is at the very opposite of one another. Zephaniah has this antipodal message, day of wrath, day of grace. Now, because he mentions the days of Josiah in the first verse, Let's talk a look take a look at the character of Josiah as king of Judah. First of all, let's begin to work on the positive aspect of Josiah's character by turning back to 2nd Chronicles and 2nd Kings. I'm going to ask you to keep your finger in 2nd Kings 22. And turn over to Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-four, and we're going to flip back and forth between the two as we read sections from Second Kings, twenty-two, and from Second Chronicles, thirty-four. All right. So, everybody, with me? You've got your fingers between Second Kings 23, 22 rather, and Second Chronicles thirty-four. This is the career of King Josiah, as it's described in the books of the history of the kings of Judah and Israel, namely 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, in this case, 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. So let's begin with Josiah's character. In 2 Kings 22, verse 2, what do we read? Read it out, anyone who has it.
3: And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left.
0: So what kind of a king is Josiah? He's a righteous one. He is a righteous king. He's a good king. In fact, he's commended for his righteousness and for his virtue. All right, now, as we skip down in 2 Kings 22, let's read verses 4 to 6. Anyone that has four to six, if you'll go ahead and read it out.
3: Go up to, excuse me, go up to Elkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house the carpenters and the builders of the nations were buying timber and stone to repair the house.
0: Now what house of the Lord is he talking about? The
2: temple.
0: The temple. Very good. So, Josiah is orchestrating a repair of the temple of the Lord. In other words, <clears throat> the temple of the Lord had, been fa- had fallen into disrepair. We'll find out in a minute why that had happened. But nonetheless... He orchestrates this repair project, okay? We're going to remodel the temple, which has become run down. So there's a positive part of his character. Now, if you turn over to 2 Chronicles 34, remember I told you I want you to be able to flip back and forth between the two chapters. Did <clears throat> somebody read verse 8 of 2 Chronicles 34?
3: In the 18th year of Josiah's reign to purify the land of the temple, he said.
0: Jachon, son of Azaliah, and
3: Monaseah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord is
0: God. In 2 Chronicles 34, you get the names of these individuals that are involved in this, but notice it is a duplication of the uh, statement that Josiah repaired the temple of the Lord. So, On his side of the ledger, he's not only a good king, as we notice, he's commended for his character, righteousness, and virtue. But he actually puts that into practice in terms of refurbishing, repairing the run-down temple of God. All right, now, in 2 Kings 22, verse 8, let's take a look at the second thing that commends Josiah to us. Anybody have verse 8? Then go ahead and read it out.
3: Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the
0: house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. All right, now holding on to that, let's take a look at 2 Chronicles 34, verse 14. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 14.
1: When they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses.
0: So, what book of the law was this that they found?
2: The Ten Commandments.
0: Well, in part, five books of Moses. Five books of Moses, probably is right. <laughs> At least that's what we believe. Not to do, not to hire critics. <laughs> All right. So they found the book of the law of Moses. Now they found a scroll that had the words of Moses, probably the first five books of the Bible. <clears throat> now, why had they found? Why did they find it in the temple? Well, because it had been placed under this rubbish or this uh, 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 debris of disrepair that had uh, built up in the temple and had been forgotten. So <clears throat> they recovered it and they bring it out and they read it. Now, the priest reads it, but let's take a look back at 2, Samuel, uh, 2 Kings uh, 23, verse 2. And let's see what that passage tells us. Second Kings 23, verse 2. Anybody have it? Go ahead and read it out.
2: He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests of the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest.
0: He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which
1: had been found in the temple of the Lord. Who read the book of
0: the covenant? The king of Josiah. <laughs> Josiah does. So not only does Josiah have the book uh, discovered in his day and the priests read it, but also he reads it, which you'll notice in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 30 is repeated. So let's have... Someone read out 2 Chronicles 34.30.
1: He went up to the temple of the Lord. Who went up? What? Who went up? Josiah. The,
0: The king Josiah went up. Go ahead.
1: Okay. The men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which have been found in the temple
0: of the Lord. So Josiah reads out the book of Moses to the people in their hearing. Here is a godly king who has, uh, with enthusiasm, discovered or had the book of Moses discovered, and he's so excited about the discovery that he says, I'm going to read it to everybody. Gather around. I'm going to read the book of Moses. So he commends to his nation the law of God as it came through his servant Moses. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> he purges or cleanses the temple. He reads the book of the law of Moses, which was rediscovered under rubbish in his day. And what's the final thing that he does, which is positive? 2 Kings 23, verses 4 to 7. Whenever you have it, go ahead and read it out. Second Kings 23, verses 4 to 7.
3: The king commanded, <coughs> commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offering in the high places of the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens.
0: Keep going to verse 7, please.
3: Oh, that's... And he brought out the Ashtoreth from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the book of Kidron and burned it in the book of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings over the Asherah.
0: Okay, keep that passage in mind, and let's turn over to Second Chronicles 34 and read out verses 3 to 4. Second Chronicles 34, verses 3 to 4. Read it out, whoever has it. in the
1: eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images verse 4 oh and they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them he cut down on the groves and the carved images and the molten images, he break them in pieces and made dust of them and stowed, strode them, strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed to
0: Right now, in both of those passages, <clears throat> you will notice that Josiah is purging the temple and the land of Judah of idolatry, perverse idolatry. What kind of a god is Baal? Fertility. He's a fertility god. Now, some translations have groves instead of the Asherah or the Asherim. Okay, the proper Hebrew word is Asherah, Asherim. Groves is an interpretation. What were the Asherah or Asherim? Poles. They were wooden poles, female symbols. Don't ask me how a wooden pole becomes a female symbol, but nonetheless, that's what it was. It is a fertility symbol of a fertility goddess. Baal is the male fertility god. The Asherah is the female fertility symbol. But also you'll notice that there are male cult prostitutes in Jerusalem. That means that there are male homosexual prostitutes working out of the temple at this time. All right, so... When we're talking about uh, idolatry in the Old Testament, particularly the idolatry of worshiping Baal, we're not talking about people making a little tin god or a bronze god and bowing down in front of it and sacrificing incense or pouring out wine libations. What we're talking about is a perverse form of sexual immorality, rampant sexual immorality, both homosexual and heterosexual. It is ugly stuff. Read some of the text from the Canaanites in which it is portrayed. It is ugly stuff. It's the same as the ugly stuff of Greek and Roman pornography. So I'm not encouraging you to do so. It's just out there. Okay. All right. There's nothing new under the sun. But Josiah says, purge it away. And he cleanses the land from this idolatry. Now we're going to ask a question later on about where it came from. We always know that the Israelites had this temptation to go after Baal. But this this uh, cleansing that Josiah uh, performs is an indication that it was overflowing. It was rampant. It had virtually taken over the culture. So uh, we'll come back to that uh, a little later in our discussion. We're not going to probably get to that tonight. But uh, in any event, Josiah's virtue manifests itself in the fear of the Lord. His godliness manifests itself in acts of godly behavior. He wants to restore the worship of God according to the book of the law of Moses, which means that thou shalt not bow down thyself to idols or to images or serve them. And so he purges the land of all the images that are that are uh, sitting around and the groves and high places where that worship was performed. Groves, that is, these little uh, uh, kind of uh, Barricades surrounded by uh, uh, low-hanging uh, 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 plants or trees that would grow about six or seven feet in the air. Because if you're going to have this sexual immorality, you want a little bit of privacy, I suppose. You know, I don't know why, but I suppose that that's the reason they had these groves. But nonetheless, that's the point of the, uh, the image of the groves. All right. Now, Josiah looks as if he can't do anything wrong. He looks as if there's nothing that could impede his godly progress. And yet, he does something very foolish. So, let's turn to Second Kings 23 again, and let's read verse 29. 2 Kings 23, verse 29.
3: While well, Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho of the king of Egypt went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed
0: him at Megiddo. At Megiddo. Alright, so there's an account where Josiah is killed at Megiddo by the Egyptian king. Now let's turn to 2 Chronicles 35 and let's read the chronicler's record of that event. Second Chronicles 35 verses 20 to 23. After
2: all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight
0: against Carchemish um, by the Euphrates,
2: and Josiah went out uh, against him. Uh, but he sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Down to verse 23.
0: Okay. Um, and the
2: archers shut king Josiah, and the king said to his servants,
0: That's fine, that's fine. Uh, Notice that in Chronicles, the death of Josiah is placed in a broader context. Namely, Pharaoh Necho indicates that God has commanded him to go up to the Euphrates. Now, in your packet, you have a map of this event. It's the last map at the back of your packet which describes the death of Josiah and the route of Pharaoh Necho to Carchemish. The black line indicates the route of Necho as he comes up out of Egypt. He meets Josiah at Megiddo, a, a city at the base of the hills at the gateway to the plains of the valley of Jezreel, and there Josiah is killed. Nico continues with his army up to Carchemish on the Euphrates, where he joins a remnant of the Assyrian Empire that had escaped from the destruction of Nineveh in 612 BC, and he reinforces the Assyrians in an attempt to stop the advance of the new king of the world. And the new king of the world is Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, and his crown prince, son Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar meet Nico and the remnant of Assyria at Carchemish in the year 609, and they drive them from the field. Nico beats a retreat back to Egypt. He follows the same route that he came north on, he goes back down to Egypt with his tail between his legs, But on his way down, he unseats the successor to Josiah, who was Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, at Riblah. You see that on your map. He takes him off the throne because he can't trust him. He's the son of Josiah, and he places Jehoiakim on the throne, whom he thinks he can control. This is a political move. He is playing musical kings. That is He's actually playing, I can control the puppet king that I put on the throne of Jerusalem, which he does. So he will control the heirs of Josiah and the city of Jerusalem for four years, from 609 to 605 BC. When he will repeat this foray, he will come out of Egypt one more time. And he will meet Nebuchadnezzar for the second time without his father, Nabopolassar on the plains of in 605 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar will do to him what his father and he had done to him before in 609. And they will chase him back to Egypt again. Only this time, Nebuchadnezzar will pursue him. And that brings us to the end of tonight's series. Any questions? All right, we'll pick up with the character... Of Ammon. So bring your sheets back next week and we'll go on with our establishing of this historical context. We, we concluded with the death of Josiah, who is the king when Zephaniah prophesies. Was Zephaniah alive when Josiah died? Another interesting question for an attempt to date Zephaniah's career. Any questions or comments? Yes, God.
3: How would Josiah have known this was a foolish move? And maybe this is separate
0: from the second question. How would Josiah know and believe Nico when he said this? He would know it's a foolish move because of what he's attempting to do. He is attempting to prevent the rise of Babylon, which may already have been prophesied. He's afraid that if he allows Egypt and Assyria to reunite, that that will then bring back the oppression of the Assyrians, which has been broken with the destruction of Nineveh. So it's foolish in the sense that with the balance of power shifting, He's trying to play maneuverer. He's playing to play manipulator. And he should have left well enough alone and allowed Nico to go to Assyria's final doom. So that when Nico was saying this, he was saying that, you know, politically, you know, uh, this is my opportunity to go to my death or to go to the death of Assyria. Leave me alone. Now, how would he have read the tea leaves? you uh, would read the tea leaves by just staying out of it. Okay. That, that's the point. He should have simply kept his hands off of this one and let it go. So Nico is, of course, taking advantage of the fact that he can use his name, the, God, the name of his God, in order to tell him that he's been instructed. Then it's not out of the realm of possibility that God had given Nico a kind of special revelation. That's not impossible. I don't think it's likely. I think Nico's playing politics too. <clears throat> but nonetheless, Josiah just simply should have stayed home. Let's pray. Father, the history of your acts in the lives of your people, kings and prophets alike, are recorded for our understanding and for our edification. These words which we have read tonight from the various parts of the scripture are your inspired words. They are here for our instruction as well as for our direction. They direct us after all is said and done. The Lord Jesus Christ who relieves us from the pain of the sin of these events and from the consequences of your judgment. For he has taken all of that judgment which we deserve. Surely we deserve it as much as Judah and Israel of old did. He has taken that judgment in our place. We hold on to him. For he Indeed, is the Lord of Zephaniah, as he was the Lord of Josiah, and all the prophets whom we have discussed tonight, we praise his name, we bless you for sending him, we are grateful for understanding your word, please help us to remember and believe, and we pray in the name of the justifying righteousness and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, amen.